1 Samuel chapter 27. I had a lot of trouble with this passage, if I'm honest with you. Um, On some levels, I felt like I was entering into a similar type of prep from a couple weeks ago when I spoke on wilderness. Um, But as I looked at this passage and and, um, studied it and prayed over it, um, I think we get a bit of a different perspective. So there'll be some recurring themes this morning, but hopefully that is um, not a burden, but a blessing to you. How many of you are familiar with the singer, songwriter, I'm going to call him a prophet as well, uh, Keith Green? Keith Green from the 70s, anybody? I grew up in a household where Keith Green was blaring. And I got to say, um, as a young kid, I did not appreciate that style of music very much. Um, but, you know, in my junior high, high school kind of days when I started playing music and listening to more music, I came to really appreciate Keith Green because the lyrics of his songs were so rich. Now, Keith Green tragically died in the early 80s. I would say he was taken from us too soon. Um, But the impact that he left on American evangelicalism was significant. Uh, The words of his songs were profound and and encouraging and and stimulating and challenging. Um, One of the songs that he has was called Make My Life a Prayer to You. And the lyrics go like this in the first verse. It says, Make my life a prayer to you. I want to do what you want me to. No empty words, no white lies, no token prayers, no compromise. Now, several years after Keith Green's death, his wife, Melody Green, would go on to write a biography about Keith titled, No Compromise. And I think the reason she went with that title is that when you read about Keith's life, here was a man who was so captured by the person and work, ministry, and teaching of Jesus that it influenced everything that he did. And this prayer that he writes in the, the first verse of this song is so, so accurate to his heart's desire. And for myself in high school, it was something I grabbed to as well. And in my youth, it was like, Lord, this is what I want. I want a life that is free of compromise. I want to live a life in such a way that I do the things I say that I'm going to do. I want to do a life that is just faithful before God, that when people look at me, they say, man, that guy knows Jesus. I want to live my life on mission. I want to live my life before God in a way that is sinless and spotless and wonderful. But I remember as years went on, I found that my walk with Jesus wasn't so much heading in this direction of no compromise, but so often it was like I would take two steps forward and then one step back. And I'd move forward in my walk with Jesus, maybe get three steps forward, and then I'd fall back two more steps. And I'd just keep going, and the refrain of my life was less one of no compromise, and a lot more like Romans chapter 7, where the Apostle Paul writes that the very things I hate, I do. The very things I do not want to do are the things I keep finding myself doing. And I struggled with this a lot. With this desire to live this no-compromise life, I found myself before the Lord saying, God, am I just a really bad Christian? Am I just like, am I just forever going to be stumbling in sin? Am I just forever and ever going to get this figured out? Because when I looked at the church and I looked at other believers, it looked like they kind of had it figured out. You know, church was always like happy, clappy. It never seemed like anyone struggled. But the more I got to talking to people, the more honest we got, it came, I came to realize that this feeling of being kind of unspiritual was pretty common 
among many other believers. This experience of failing and struggling in sin was actually pretty common among many believers. And then as I actually started to study the Word a bit more and get more into Scripture and and learn about Jesus and the Bible, I came to realize that the characters of God's Word, the heroes of faith that we boast about, also lived a life of three steps forward and two steps back and two steps forward and one step back. And so I found myself to be in good company. I don't know about you, if you can relate to my experiences of longing to be more like Jesus and feeling like my life is looking a lot more like the world than it does like Jesus day to day. Of longing to feel spiritual and feel like I'm in touch with God, but finding myself feeling incredibly unspiritual day to day. And I'm not standing here this morning as someone who believes they figured it out. In fact, I feel like this is my present reality, right? I got good days. I got not so good days. I got days I'm like, yeah, I'm nailing it, which are followed by like, oh, shoot, like, I'm the worst. I'm supposed to be a pastor. Come on. But when I look at the life of David, when I look at 1 Samuel chapter 27, I wonder if I'm not getting a glimpse into the life of a man who longed to walk with Jesus in no compromise, who longed to honor the Father in no compromise, but found himself, as he moved a couple steps forward, falling one or two steps back. So how do I get to this conclusion from this chapter? Well, as we know, David has been on the run from Saul. He knows that he's the anointed king. He's the one that Samuel has said, David, you're going to be the king of Israel. Saul does not like David. He's going after him hard. In the last narrative we had of the life of David, David um, was just in this interesting situation with, with, uh, with Nabob and um, we have Abigail. And he ends up getting, getting married to Abigail. And there's something about this transition in the story where after he gets married, it's like he decides he doesn't want to be in this situation where Saul's chasing him anymore. So he decides to go and find safety. And I look at the story, I'm like, he also just got married, so it's like he's ready to go on his honeymoon. Well, where does David go? Where would you like to go on your honeymoon? Somewhere tropical, somewhere beautiful? David decides to take his new bride, Abigail, and all the people with him behind enemy lines. He decides to go to Philistine territory. Not the kind of place I would go for safety. Not the kind of place I would go for refuge. But this is exactly where David finds both safety and refuge. It seems counterintuitive, but according to verse 4 in chapter 27, Saul decides, well, I'm just going to leave David alone. After this, David requests to the king that he would have a city given to him. And he comes to Achish and he says, hey, if you like me, if you think, if you're okay with me, I'd love to find a place where I can settle down. And he says, sure. He gives him Ziklag. And Ziklag is south of where Achish is. And so David settles down in Ziklag. Now to this point, I'm like, okay, this makes sense. David wants to get away from Saul. David wants to find comfort and safety and security. He settles down in Ziklag. But then the narrative turns in a way that causes me to raise my eyebrows. And I'm like, whoa, what's going on here? Now, first of all, I would think that in this situation, David would just settle down, right? He'd just settle down in Ziklag, hang out, just be like, this is good. Let's stay here. But the narrative tells us that David gets to work. He gets to work. 
he heads out into Israel and he begins to attack various communities. He, he does raids against the Gershites, the, the Gerzites, the Amalekites. And he goes in them and he kind of gets rid of these people. Now what's interesting is that later on, we have David, he goes back to Achish and he reports to Achish the cities that he was raiding, the people that he was raiding. And the lists are not the same. David is flat out lying to Achish. Flat out lying. David, what he's doing is he's raiding Philistine territory. He's raiding the enemies of Israel. And he goes back to Achish and he tells him that he's actually, he's actually raiding the Israelites. He's dealing with the Israelites. And so we have this interesting thing going on where you're like, wait a minute, David. You're lying. David's dishonesty is flat out breaking of the ninth commandment that says, do not bear false witness. By lying, David secures his safety in Philistine territory, as well as expands the territory of Israel. More than this, we see that David makes his lying work that much better when we read in verse 11 that that David totally destroys the inhabitants of these communities. And the narrator tells us that he does this so that there be no survivors to go back and rat him out about his lying. And when I read this, I'm like, David, like, what are you doing? Why are you lying? Some might look at this and we can get into the ethics of lying. We can get into all these different things. Uh, We could talk about, is it ever okay to lie? Is it ever okay uh, to be dishonest? And from some perspectives, you might say yes. I know Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously has said that yes, in some situations, it's okay to lie. Earlier in 1 Samuel, we read about Samuel himself. Lying about why he's in Bethlehem. You know, I'm here to make a sacrifice, uh, not to anoint a new king. And we read these moments in scripture and we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Guys, what are you doing? But as I've studied this passage and considered it within the whole of 1 Samuel, I'm led to conclude that David's lying is about him trusting his ways over God's. I believe that David's deceit is about securing his comfort And his safety. And I wrestle with that. But again, I think I find in my own life these three steps forward and one or two steps back that I might just be in good company with David. And while I may struggle to understand David's cunning, I think it points to a reality that you and I all face. We all long for the best case scenarios in life, we all long for obvious choices. We all long to live a life where we are free from any type of distress or conflict. We we long for a life where this whole issue of compromise would never come up because we'd never have to make a choice. But I think that we instead find ourselves like David living in enemy territory. We too, like David, find ourselves facing situations where compromise seems like the only solution To a problem. Where compromise may seem like the only way to safety. But I wonder, is this not simply how life is? We can look around ourselves and we may not presently experience the ideals that we long for. So we, like David, labor in trying to create them. We try to make our situations and our circumstances as favorable as we possibly can. And if we're fortunate... 
our sense of control might be justified and we find ourselves saying, yes, this is better. This is good. But more often than not, one fulfilled ideal leads, eventually gives way to seeing two or three or four other ideals that need to be created. One use of power and control to make our situation more favorable and better eventually gives way to two or three more opportunities for us similarly to compromise. If we lied to find ourselves in safety and security, it's probably going to produce more lying in the future. If we had to cheat to get ahead, once that first step of getting ahead comes to pass, we find ourselves falling behind again. Well, what are we going to do? We're just going to keep cheating. Or maybe we're in a season of life where we feel like we're longing for comfort and we're not experiencing, so, so we give in to unhealthy habits to just feel better. But the satisfaction of that unhealthy habit only lasts for a little while. And it just gives way to another unhealthy habit or an expansion of the one that was already there. Over time, we might become passive about righteousness. And integrity begins slipping further and further away. So while we, find, we might find good company with King David in Ziklag, we also, like David, need to strive still towards righteousness. So what should we do? What should we do? Well, in my last message about wilderness, I addressed the issue of control and said that we need to give up control. And that we, we move forward in that by seeing how God is working. And I think similarly, when I read this text and I, I think about this reality of, of compromise at work in my own life, I think that overcoming this compromise begins with us seeing where God is working. We need to see where God is at work. And I wonder in this situation if this is maybe something that David missed. This might have been something that David missed. And I think the question that this begs for us is, what if something that is not ideal to us, a situation, a circumstance, a, something that's uncomfortable, if it's not ideal to us, what if that's actually ideal to God? What if that's ideal to God? Timothy Keller tells a story um, from his, when he was a younger man, and he was in love with this woman, and they were in a relationship, but he felt like she was slipping away, that she didn't want to be in this relationship anymore. So Keller is praying and crying out to God that, that this woman would turn her heart towards Tim and that their relationship would be rekindled. And he even says that I, I moved from one place to another to be closer to this woman to try to save this relationship. Well, Timothy Keller obviously goes on to marry Kathy, who was not the woman he was praying that God would have him be in a relationship with. And Keller writes that as I look back, God was saying to me, Son, when a child of mine makes a request, I always give that person what he or she would have asked for if they knew everything that I know. I always would have given that person exactly what they asked for if they knew everything I know. I love that quote. Keller is identifying this reality that if he could see what God could have seen about his life, he never would have prayed for success in that relationship with that woman because he would have known that God had Kathy in mind for him. And he would have prayed differently. And I think so often in our own lives, we find ourselves in situations where we're like, 
you know, God, just change this, change this, change this. But our perspective might be limited. We might not see the way that God might want to use that situation in our lives. We might not see how God might want to use that situation to form character or to build us up in Him. A verse that's very relevant to this is Proverbs chapter 3. The first half of this section of Scripture is quite familiar to us. This is something we learn in Sunday school. But trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean in your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your, your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Wow. There was a time in college when I was just starting um, my, my studies around Scripture and training to be a pastor. And, you know, when you're in Bible school, you're often confronted with, well, I think any post-secondary education, you're confronted with all these questions about God. You're confronted with all these questions about life. And I, I found myself confused. I was in this, like, crisis of faith type of season of my life. And I remember crying out to God, God, I just, I need to understand this. I need to make sense of this. I need this to be different than it currently is for me. And it was my morning devotions, reading Proverbs chapter 3, where the Holy Spirit spoke so clearly to me through God's word. He said, Adam, lean not on your own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. When we are in situations where we feel temptation to compromise on our faith, to compromise on our beliefs, to compromise in action, and we feel so justified in doing so, we need to lean not on our own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. It's the prayer that says, God, I want to see this situation the way that you do. When I think of 1 Samuel, I think of David in this case, I, I full-heartedly, I believe that what God has demonstrated to David throughout 1 Samuel is that David and his men could have secured safety from Achish and the Philistines with a rock and a sling. Compromise, I don't think, was necessary. When we read 1 Samuel, we read about David overcoming these impossible situations as he honored God. And we get to the narrative in, in 1 Samuel chapter 27, and what's fascinating about this narrative is that God is not mentioned. Nowhere in this chapter do we read about God. Nowhere in this chapter do we read about the Lord or God's intervention or David inquiring of the Lord as we have in past chapters. But we have this chapter that seems to be just devoid of God. David is not inquiring of him. He's not seeking to understand his will from my perspective. I'm speculating. (laughs) But what I see in this text is a of willingness to see this as God sees it. To see it as God sees it. And so for us, we need to begin by looking to see where God is working. The second thing I think we need to do that I believe David actually did really well is when we're in difficult seasons, we need to settle into Ziglag. Settle into Ziglag. What on earth am I talking about? Sometimes, instead of us trying to change our circumstances, we need to embrace them. Instead of trying to change our circumstances, we need to embrace them. Now, something that David did right in this chapter is that he got to work. 
And not only did he get to work in like making his life comfortable in Ziklag, but he got to work as if he were the king of Israel. It's like he took the anointing that Samuel gave to him to be king and he said, I'm supposed to be king. I'm going to go and act as the king. Well, what was the king expected to do? Well, the king was supposed to secure the land for Israel. If we're reading this chapter from a perspective of the book of Joshua, we would be saying, yes, David, go, David. You're doing it, David. Because our understanding from Joshua is that when the Israelites came into the promised land, they did not finish in their mission to clear the land of its inhabitants. And over and over again, we read in Israel's history of the problem that that caused for them. But here we have David acting as king, acting as a fulfillment of the book of Joshua, as he continues to clear the land of its inhabitants. And so I think for us, what we might get from this text is that when we're in these difficult seasons, we still need to live out our anointing. We need to live out our identity. We need to recognize what God has said about us and be faithful in doing the things that God has called us to. Now it's easy to allow for our own missteps. Uh, it's, easy, it's easy to allow our own missteps and our own failures to keep us from being faithful to God. When we're struggling with compromise, when we feel like we're making one mistake after another, it's so easy for us to just think, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough to be a Christian. I'm not good enough to honor God. Who am I to make a difference? Or we might come to a point where like, I just, I just need to figure me out for a season. These types of things. But what if in that difficult situation, God is just calling you to a radical faithfulness where you live out the identity that he's already given you. Where he's already given you. In the New Testament, 1 Peter is writing to a group of persecuted churches living in Asia Minor. And what does he tell them? Does he tell them to wallow? Does he tell them to be bitter? No, he tells them to be zealous for doing good. He tells them to, to live so faithfully to God that the culture and the world around them look at them and go, wait, aren't you guys being persecuted? Why are you full of hope? Why are you full of peace? And I think that invitation goes out to us as well. Well, how do we do that? I think we need to walk in grace. We need to walk in grace. I think this goes for both of these realities of, of looking to see where God is working as well as settling into Ziklag. We, we need to be a people who live and walk in grace. Because here's the reality. We screw up. We do. We compromise. We do. And when I read and study the New Testament, it seems to me willf willful compromise is not justifiable. As I read scripture, willful compromise is not justifiable. But we recognize that we find ourselves in seasons where that seems to be what we choose to do. But do you know what I love about chapter 27 of 1 Samuel? That even though God is not mentioned, there's no doubt that he is present. In all of the commentaries I read, they acknowledge the absence of God. As well as acknowledge that David's success in his military campaigns are because of God. That David succeeding in what he was doing in 1 Samuel chapter 27 is because the Lord is with him. So no matter how much you've screwed up. No matter how many times you've compromised. 
Maybe it was this morning. Maybe it was yesterday. Maybe it was this past week. No matter how many missteps we have in our journey with Jesus, the Lord is still with us. The Lord still longs to do a work in our lives, even when it feels like we're not very cooperative with him. And when we read the scriptures as a whole, from Genesis to Revelation, we read stories of real people who screwed up. We read about Noah drinking too much and making a fool of himself. We read about Moses' sin. We read about the apostle Peter who just seemed to put his foot in his mouth over and over again. These were real people who made real mistakes. And friends, the Christian life is not about us getting everything perfect, but it's about casting ourselves, our minds, our hearts upon the one who is perfect. About casting ourselves upon Jesus. I think about my own life. I think about choices that I've made in the past and I so quickly feel like I should be completely disqualified from God's love or his mercy. I feel like I should be disqualified from serving him. But that's where God's grace meets me. God looks at me and he says, I know you screwed up. But my grace is here. My grace is here. It meets you in those mistakes. The Christian life isn't about us having control over righteousness, of having, being experts on what it looks like to live right. Look at the Pharisees in the New Testament. They thought they had everything figured out, but what did they miss? They missed Jesus. They missed the very heart of God. So while it's so easy to think it's all about doing the right things all of the time, when Jesus showed up on the scene, his invitation was to get their heads out of the clouds of, of being totally perfect and righteous and to understand that walking with Jesus is just that. It's a relationship, journeying with him day in and day out. So what do we do with our compromise? Well, first we need to acknowledge it. We acknowledge our sin. We recognize it for what it is. We, we acknowledge that we've made a mistake. We've acknowledged that we screw up. And then we repent of it. And in Scripture, repentance is, is a lot more than saying you're sorry. Repentance is about changing your mind about the thing that you have done. So where you might have seen a sin as justifiable for whatever reasons, you might see a sin as, as something that you want to do, something that would be pleasurable or whatever it is, Repentance is looking at that and changing your mind about it. Choosing to see it the way that God sees it. Choosing to look at it the way that God's word uh, talks about it. And so you, as you change your mind about it, you, kinda, you do a 180 degrees and you walk the other way. You say, no, I'm not going to live that way anymore. It's more than just saying, I'm sorry. It's about movement towards right living in accordance to God's word. But it doesn't stop there. The next thing we do is we receive God's forgiveness. We receive his forgiveness. Which is to, to sit before him and, and actually listen to him say to you, you are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. When you sit there kind of exposed in your sin and your brokenness and your screw-ups, you sit there and you hear God say to you, you are my beloved child. In whom I'm well pleased. And then from that place, from that identity, we walk in grace. 
We walk in grace. I really appreciate um, in Titus chapter 2, Titus writing about the, the grace of God. He writes that, for the grace of God has appeared. So God's grace has come, right? Bringing salvation for all people. Now most of us, we stop there, right? God's grace that brought salvation. That's fantastic. Amen. But he goes on. This grace of God, this favor of God towards us, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This is that repentance piece, right? As we turn our hearts to God's perspective, His grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It moves us towards that righteous living so that we may live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So what's the end result of this passage? We're zealous for good works. How does it begin? Walking in grace. Walking in grace. A recognition that, no, I'm never going to get it right. I'm never going to get it right all the time. I'm going to screw up. I'm going to compromise. But God's grace meets me in those places. God's grace meets me in those places. Friends, in this two steps forward, one step back journey that we call faith, Jesus meets us. The good news, the gospel that we preach, that we talk about, is that though we may fail, though we may screw up, and time and time again, we do that. Each time, the goodness and the mercy of God stands true. His goodness and His mercy is present to us. It meets us in our weakness and our pain, our struggles and our failings. And when He comes to us in these places, we need only receive that grace. And then we take the next step forward, the next two steps forward, the next three steps forward, and maybe one or two steps back. And we just keep going in His grace. So friends, when we recognize we're living behind enemy lines and facing choices where it just seems best to compromise, I hope that we can learn to see God at work, that we can settle into the seasons where He has us, and that we can walk in grace. Let's pray together. I invite the worship team to come forward. Father God, we thank you so much for your grace. Lord, that you did not leave us in a position where our sins deserved. You did not abandon us. But you sent your son, person of Jesus, who himself lived a perfect and spotless life. Who showed us how we're to live our lives. So God, may we learn from the example of Jesus. May we walk with him in grace. And Lord, help us not to get caught up in past sins and past compromises. But may we receive your grace for today. And to continue on in this life loving you and and loving our neighbor. In Jesus' name.
Amen.